Welcome, FinTech Talkers, to another edition of the FinTech Talk Show. This is Patty, and our guests today are two future startup unicorn CEOs innovating in payments, banking as a service, and other things in FinTech. Please welcome Shamir. Um, welcome back, Shamir Karkal uh, from Sila Money and Brian Bonkowski from Turn. Our call today will focus on how they're virtualizing banking and finance, innovating in payments, building new rails, removing friction and cross-border payments and more. Are you curious about how banking as a service is becoming a utility? What is FinTech as a service? And how would you build banking for developers? Then listen on as my guests have all the answers and more. Welcome Shamir and Brian to the FinTech Talk Show. Thank you for having me, Patty. Yeah, thanks, Patty. This is great. That's great. Um, look forward to it. Um, before we get dive into the fintech and banking as a service and payments, can you talk a little bit about your journeys um, for our audience? What made you get into APIs, BAS, or banking as a service and payments? Maybe start with Shamir first. You go first. Sure. Um, so, Paddy, I kind of like fell into this in some ways. I, I was a consultant back in 2009, uh, and I was doing a bunch of like consulting for financial institutions uh, in North America and in Europe. And a friend from business school sent me an email saying, let's start a retail bank. That's how I ended up uh, founding Simple, which was probably the first neobank anywhere. Uh, I moved back to the US and started it up in Josh's basement in Brooklyn in, in late 09. You'll see how crazy I am. Um, and it took us three years to go from initial idea to actually launching Simple. Uh, and that's where I kind of learned about how hard it is to build and ship anything innovative in the world of finance. Um, and and that, that was a very formative experience for me. Simple then was acquired by BBVA a few years later. Uh, and I heard about this idea at BBVA of building platforms. And I was like, yes, please. The world needs API platforms in banking. If this had existed, Josh and I wouldn't have spent three years just launching Simple. Uh, and, and then what, what more could we have done, right? Um, and so I got very excited about the idea, left Simple, moved to BBVA and spent a couple of years building API platforms for them, uh, built and launched one in Europe and one in the US um, and, and you know, built and launched them and even signed up customers. Uh, but I was never able to make it uh, grow the way I really wanted to at BBVA. So I left uh, BBVA in 2017 uh, and then started up uh, Scylla in 2018. And we've been live now for a two and a half years. Uh, we have uh, 50 plus customers live in production. Um, and, uh, and, and, and business is, business is great, actually. Uh, but for, for me, in some ways, it feels like this is kind of what I've been doing for the last 12 years, uh, one way or the other. <laughs> now, how fascinating your first entrepreneurial journey kind of triggering or leading you to the second one. And I've, I've heard so much of that. Um, I, I want to kind of ask you a follow-up on that, but let me go to Brian first for his opening remarks. Brian. Great. Thanks, buddy. Um, so yeah, um, my, my background is actually more in, in enterprise software and systems. I, uh, I built out a, uh, a company in New York that catered to New York's, you know, small and medium enterprise communities and ERP and CRM software. So that really gave me kind of a a foothold in understanding the what drives CFOs to make decisions, right? What drives these businesses to to prosper and grow, and how how the money flowed in and out of these these various systems. Um, and I actually got into payments in 2010 after building out kind of this you know ERP and CRM uh, expertise, and I, I, I set out to uh, apply what I what I knew about. Um, enterprise software to the the payments ecosystem. Um, I started out in the acquiring space, and I found the acquiring space pretty quickly to be. Um, I hate to say it, but it felt like I was like full of car salesmen, and I was competing against people that were you know just like a, a race to the bottom, um, not a whole lot of innovation. 
Um, this is, you know, when, when Braintree and Stripe were kind of like coming into fruition as well. Um, and I felt that there was a lot more innovation actually happening on the issuing side of the house. So we tried to find a, an interesting use case for issuing. And we found one in, um, in cross-border e-commerce. So these are people outside of the U.S. who want to buy, buy, buy goods on U.S. e-commerce websites. And they either their cards didn't work or they didn't have credit or they didn't have, you know, a, a wherewithal to actually purchase these goods. So we ended up finding a company called U.S. Unlock that was doing exactly what we wanted. Um, and we asked them if we could white label their platform and kind of build it out and <laughs> essentially monetize um, their platform. And they said no. Uh, and luckily, a, a few months later, luckily for us, a few months later, their their bank decided to get out of the prepaid issuing space. And they came back to us and said, hey, um, are you still interested in doing business and um, we ended up acquiring the company for, and we got a pretty good deal uh, because they were without a bank and we had a bank. Um, so we, we set out to, to kind of build out that, that infrastructure. Um, but being that I had, you know, ex- experience on the acquiring side, I knew kind of like how the ISO models work and how the, 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 the larger scale distribution of financial services in this context would work. Um, so we um, set out to, um, replatform us unlocked to be white labelable and web service enabled what have you um, and also um, built out a, a distribution framework to you know essentially uh, manage like the fee structure manage um, uh, an agent channel and manage the distribution of, of those of those functions and we you know we built that out for a few years um, and we're actually in the process of, of replatforming you know one more time um, to make all those services you know available on demand so um, you know, we're going to market in Q3 with a on-demand fintech platform. So anybody, essentially the, the first tranche will be any U.S. business can launch a, a, a fintech service. That will be, you know, prepaid cards, bank accounts, remittance, crypto, what, what have you, um, you know, all in an on-demand context. That's kind of like the direction that we're going. Awesome. Um, both of you and definitely Brian, you have had the full value chain exposure from um, acquiring to issuing and kind of settling or seeing the opportunity in infrastructure. Love to drill down more on that because we're seeing a lot of that. Um, but Shamir, going back to you, I know you're doing infrastructure now, but kind of you have the simple tag attached to you and you talked about it in your opening remarks as well. So I want to talk about the challenger bank space. I mean, they're still active. I know simple's kind of subsumed within BBBA, but there are others, um, the, the usual suspects and, and also there are big tech players, big bank players, um, and, and big fintech players, if I can categorize them, um, kind of like the PayPal's and Square. I mean, they have their own kind of flavors, if you will, and the crypto players. So how do you see the whole kind of challenger bank evolving? You have a unique vantage point, if I can say that you were the first challenger bank co-founder, so to speak. So your your perspective is incredible. Yeah, so challenger banking has... Uh, has basically grown up in the last decade, right? It's been uh, almost exactly 10 years since Simple launched in July of 2012. Uh, and, and back then, the, the very idea that anybody in their right mind would bank with a fintech startup uh, online uh, or on a, using a mobile app with no branches, no charter, all of these things. I mean, there was like a, uh, what I, what in today's world would be called a lot of FUD around it, right? Uh, now it's, it's not just uh, that that question doesn't even arise, right? Like if you tell somebody, somebody that you bank with, I don't know, a Vero or a Chime or a Current or one of 20 others, uh, people will be like, oh, okay. Uh, but if you still look at it now, uh, I think across all the neobanks, if you added up all the numbers of users, and assume that they were all distinct. You've got to believe there's some overlap at least. But even if you assume that they were distinct, you'd get to a number probably south of 20 million. Obviously, the big ones have a much, much larger chunk of it. And this is in the US where there's 340 million people, over 250 million of whom are adults. So at best, challenger banks across the US are maybe at 10% market share. I don't think they're even that close. I think they're probably at like 5%, uh, you know, five, five, six, seven percent somewhere in that range is probably the right thing. So you're like, wait, 
after getting like massive amounts of like uh, fundraising and hype and, and growth, honestly, a lot of these companies now have millions of end users and the whole industry is still just 5% of the, the market that they could go after. And the answer is yes, most Americans still bank with Chase or Bofa or Wells or City or, you know, the, 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 the big traditional banks. So it's not day one for challenger banks anymore, but it might, it might be like, you know, halfway through day two, right? It's still pretty early in the space. If you want to start a challenger bank today, that's still a case to be made that the, the, the market has not been won. I mean, heck, people are, people start traditional banks uh, now. So why, why not challenger banks, right? I do think, though, that what you're seeing more and more is it's kind of the universal you know, model that kind of simple went out with, which is we're going to bank everybody who's an adult, right? Uh, that can still work. I'm going to say it's a lot harder now because there's, there's just a lot more competition in that space. What I see more and more is more focused uh, challenger banks, whether they're serving uh, Native Americans who have unique financial problems, whether they're serving black or underprivileged communities, whether they're serving immigrants, whether they're serving uh, different, you know, specific communities. Uh, sometimes those communities are not uh, geographic or they're not what you traditionally consider a community, right? Like African-American. Uh, they might be uh, a community, a gaming community. And you're like, these are all the people who love playing particular game, World of Warcraft, whatever, right? Uh, this is a, a neobank focused at golfers. And it's like, really? Yeah, why not? There's traditionally a lot of people who love to play golf. And there's traditionally been like credit cards for golfers and all sorts of other financial services aimed at like golfers. Why not a neobank, right? So you see more differentiation uh, and, and, and more like targeted uh, focus because it all comes back down to cost of customer acquisition and long-term value, right? Or lifetime value of the customer. So if you're, there's definitely lifetime value. You can make the, the you know, you, you can make the model work, whether it's interchange funded or something else. There's a few different ways of doing it, but it can be done. But the cost of customer acquisition is not going down. <laughs> and if you're going with a broad targeted strategy, then you're going to face roughly the same cost as everybody else. But maybe if you can like be more targeted and, and focus on a specific community or a specific strategy, that can, if you do it right, reduce your CAC and increase your LTV. And that's what I see happening more and more. I do suspect 10 years from now, when we look back on it, we'll be like, yes, the traditional banks are still there. They're not, they're not going to vanish in 10 years. Their market share will be much less, uh, maybe south of 50% by then. And you're going to see a plethora. There's 4,000, 5,000 banks in the US and 6,000 credit unions, so 11,000 traditional FIs. I think there's space for at least a few hundred new banks, challenger banks, but differentiated more and more. Got it. Now, that's great words of wisdom, Shamir. I, I think the last uh, a, a few minutes, the way you kind of built it up and, and going into the segment specific and the economic models like Interchange or other, but kind of boils down to the cost customer acquisition or building that community, providing that lifestyle applica- uh, kind of value to, to the members or, or, or the customers. No, that's great. Um, Brian, if you have thoughts on Challenger Bank, would love to hear, but I, I do want to talk to you. I know we talked kind of one-on-one about kind of your focus um, on, on inner city um, or helping inner city kids and, and kind of the whole kind of theme around inclusion and inclusive innovation, the Kilimanjaro initiative. So I want you to um, have some time to talk about that and your passion. I know you're very passionate about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, first, I, I, I would love to like kind of um, follow up on um, Shamir's comments about like neobanks. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the opportunity is in like communities, right? A small, maybe like a Filipino community that has like specific drivers and they have specific brands and they want specific discounts and specific merchants, right? They want specific services. Maybe, you know, they're a community that like tends to like maybe um, have families loan money to each other. So pooling resources, pooling funds for, for inter-community lending, I think is really interesting niche. Um, at, at turn, we've actually found some 
um, very interesting opportunities in the remittance space and having a, a, you know, banking as a service platform that can layer in remittance capabilities and moving money cross border um, can satisfy a lot of the, the value adds to a lot of these communities. We'd be them, you know, overseas Filipino workers or Mexican migrant workers in the U.S. or, you know, off, offshore labor um, sources, um, you know, um, technical resources. Um, call center resources, just moving money cross border, I think is really interesting opportunity for for neo banks and to to place themselves in that in that in the, the value chain there, and and the provider can also you know make money in 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 the on the FX spread and um, transactional revenue and, and incremental revenue in an, in an above interchange. I think we all um, can come to a conclusion that interchange is going to you know continue to be beat up and depleted with with regulation and what have you um so yeah i think there's there there has to be other levers to drive these programs and i think communities and and again like i think like remittance is is interesting um value add there um but yeah no thank you for bringing up the majority initiative actually i had a uh i met um four potential um uh climbers yesterday in new york um, so the Kilimanjaro Initiative sponsors inner city youth, um, uh, youth, youth leaders between 18 and 25, typically, um, on a, um, on a trip to Africa where we teach them leadership skills and training exercises and team building. And then they attempt to climb Kilimanjaro. Um, it's a really unique opportunity to kind of like springboard them into their, their new life and, and into a career. Um, and it's, I'm incredibly passionate about it. So thank you for, for, for plugging it. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank, thanks for that. How, where can they get more information if anyone wants to? Uh, KIUSA.org. Awesome. Okay, um, that's good. good kind of level set and foundation. I think a lot of people know you already, but that was a good round of introduction. It is mid-May 2022, so we can't have a lot of conversation without talking about the market sell-off and what's going on, especially tech and even fintech for that matter. Um, so... Uh, what do you think happens now? Meaning, are we at the bottom? I mean, it's hard to predict, obviously, markets. But br- maybe, Brian, go to you first this time. Uh, what do you think happens here? And what what sometimes all, in all these sell-offs and crisis lies opportunity? Um, so talk talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think that the, the market has kind of like right-sized itself. Um, I think that the market has been like way overinflated. Some of these tech valuations, fintech valuations have just been stupid, right? Um, trading on like so many times ARR. It's just like, it's not, it's not feasible. It's not repeatable. Um, you know, and I think the, the, the public markets have demonstrated that by just these, these stocks getting crushed. Maybe they're like a little bit undervalued now. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a good time to buy, but I mean, I think they will start creeping back up, especially if these people are, these companies can be capital efficient and, and maintain their, their, you know, installation base. Um, so I think that has definitely trickled into the, the, the growth financing of like the larger rounds of like the B's and C's. I think a lot of that has come to like a screeching halt because they're just not getting the valuations that they were, you know, six months ago. Um, we are seeing like early stage, um, valuations similar to where, where they were before. Um, but I think what, what I find incredibly interesting in the markets is that the, the crypto markets are, are basically like in line, in line with NASDAQ now, right? Whereas before, I think there would be like a massive, you know, sell off of, of, of the, you know, of the stock markets and, and crypto was not necessarily affected. But I think that there's so much institutional money in the crypto markets now that they they kind of have to go hand in hand. So um, there's no longer this like this or that. It's all this. Right. So I think that's a really interesting change that's that's happened that, that we're all kind of realizing. Yeah. Interesting perspective. And and, and just to note to our audience, it's not, I mean, we're, we're kind of just chatting. It's not to be construed as financial advice. You should consult your own advisor. You should definitely not listen to me for yeah. financial advice. <laughs> because your context <laughs> and your situation. Or me for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, Shamir, um, I'd love to hear that non-financial advice or, or what you think is happening um, in the markets as well from your perspective. Yeah, it feels to me sometimes like, you know, uh we're we're doing uh an action replay of the 1920s uh but we're doing it as a speed round right we started off with a uh a pandemic uh then uh 
were like we started off with a pandemic then we had a a, a big uh, financial boom and then we had a big financial bust and then we had war in europe this took like 20 years last time around <laughs> it's taken like two and a half years this time around and i'm just so uh, I, i i do think the there is some truth to that in that one of the effects that seems to have happened uh with the pandemic is like when you look at the boom that happened last year and i i i i, I tend to agree with uh, brian that like some of it was just like felt like pure insanity in terms of valuations some in the public markets too i mean there was this whole meme stock phenomenon which i just never understood uh but then there was even in the private markets as late stage you saw like valuations that were like kind of like historic all time high multiples and you're like how is this company going to grow fast enough to justify that when they're already pretty big right it's not like tiny companies uh in some cases uh so that it it felt like there there was a lot of good stuff happening last year coming out of the pandemic and uh it just felt that the the public markets the boom got so far detached from the reality of the good news uh and and it, it the 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 upside of the cycle was almost like you know hypercharged right now i feel like we are seeing the reverse side of that where we are seeing that there is some more bad news out there right like there is like real inflation is a problem uh the fed is raising interest rates to combat that we do have war in europe and there are supply chain problems left over from like the pandemic i mean and the pandemic isn't over especially not if you're in china uh so it's there's there's really there are real elements of like bad news out there and yet you look at it and you're like inflation is high but it's uh, a lot of it is in stuff that we think is transient like you know food and energy prices uh, unemployment on the flip side is at like all time lows uh, the uh, people still have a lot of spending power um, and, and 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 we are still just working our way out of the, the the pandemic right and so i'm like there's probably a little more bad news now than there was last year but it's not like last year was like heaven on earth and this year is hell on earth right so it feels like just as the the stock market got hypercharged on on some good news it fe- now feels like it's hypercharged on the negative side on on some bad news um and especially if you look at uh, like in i was i was just looking like for i think public market cloud uh, companies some of them are now trading at lower multiples than they did back in uh, 2019 pre pandemic right uh-huh. now i'm like i'm not saying the multiples of 2019 were right <laughs> uh, but it's true that all of these companies are just like twice as big now than they were before uh, so i wouldn't i'm not saying that the markets are at the bottom or anywhere close to it but i it does feel like the the optimism of 12 months ago was just way out of line with reality and the pessimism right now is maybe also out of line with the reality of the economy that doesn't mean that that optimism from 12 months ago lasted much longer than i would have thought <laughs> and it got way crazier than i would have thought possible things can get way worse now bef- before people get back to some semblance of like you know the mean uh, good news is i don't think it's going to hit the real economy nearly as much uh, because the near real economy is is you know this is the, the the fundamentals there are not bad yet so i don't think we are going into recession like an actual recession but i wouldn't be surprised if the markets go south further before they go north again <laughs> that's a well, we had a down quarter last quarter right so one more quarter and we're in a recession that's true that is true we were down on a negative on a on a real basis although not yeah. on a nominal basis right yeah now ho- hopefully that the r word we don't like to hear that but great great historical perspective from both of you and and kind of the argument that things were a little bit in play obviously there's a lot of printing or or money supply which which there too yeah the there was an unprecedented amount of like uh money supply and that's being pulled out of the markets which is one of the big drivers underlying all of this and interest rates are rising but they're still like we're at 1% that's nothing compared to where we were 3 or 4 years ago and if you look back over 30 40 years 1% would have been considered a low interest rate environment so it's not none of the absolutes of where we are are actually bad it's just the market's whipsawing 
Yeah. And and Brian, you talked a little bit about crypto and NASDAQ, meaning crypto. I think your point was that it was kind of more, more, there was more money going to it, maybe for a variety of reasons. And now you're seeing some leveling. So talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that they're, they're, they're tied, whereas they, they have not been tied in the past. Right. I think um, they operated kind of in, in a silo, you know, uh, early adopters of crypto, you know, the, the holders, what have you, um, were kind of like driving the, those market conditions. And I think that there were, you know, some early stage institutional people who actually like would, you know, could effectuate change in those, in the crypto markets, like personally, right. You know, um, China would, you know, they, they would, uh, I think it's commonly known that they would like change their, their laws around crypto, knowing that that would affect the markets in a, in a negative way or a positive way. And, and they would you know, essentially be able to hedge that and make money. I think that the, the, the gross crypto markets as a whole now are, are big enough that, you know, individual institutional investors really aren't making a, a, a significant difference, but like as a whole, I think there's, you know, a, you know, I, I know people who are, you know, in their 50s, 60s that are, you know, they, they now have, you know, a, a Coinbase account or whatever, and they're like watching the crypto markets and, and it's, it's much more, um, you know, just uh, topical and conversation amongst the cohorts that I don't think it was really attractive to before. Um, I, I would also like add that, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate what's happened to like some of these I, I thought would be like very interesting and potentially innovative stable coins um, that are, you know, just not doing what they should be doing and could, you know, potentially come to like a, a crashing halt, especially those that aren't like actually back with fiat. Um, I think that's really like uh, a scary place. Um, and, you know, I, I just hope these, these don't turn into like a, you know, like a, a Ponzi scheme or what have you billion dollar Ponzi scheme. Right. Yeah. The algorithmic um, stable coins and, and such. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I want to pivot to what you're building now, I mean, I think both of you are uh, building in the fintech infrastructure space and, and it's called different things, obviously platform um, or BAS or banking as a service. So maybe Shamir, go to you first. Um, talk a little bit about what you're building in Sila Money um, and, and how do you fit into in the ecosystem of fintech infrastructure? Totally. Um, so Sila is pretty much the only one that I know of at least, which is a crypto native API platform for programming with money uh, in the US. Uh, What that means is that our core product is a restore HTTP API platform that does uh, end user onboarding and identity verification. So KYC, KYB, uh, digital wallets, virtual bank accounts, ACH payments uh, and wire payments, right? Uh, and we do, we have all the, we have the technology to support all of that. Uh, but we also work with a partner bank, uh, Evolve Bank and Trust. And uh, we, we integrate into their, uh, you know, underlying accounts and, and payment systems through them. Uh, but we manage a lot of the compliance that is associated with getting somebody live as well. Obviously, we operate under uh, evolve CIP and policies and everything. But on a day-to-day basis, our customers interact with us. So they come to us, we handle their onboarding, reviewing their uh, business plans and use cases and and everything that a bank would do, we do to onboard a new customer. Uh, but we just do it a lot more efficiently than banks have historically been able to do, right? So where it would take you... Uh, I'd say probably six, 12, maybe 18 months to, to get a new fintech or crypto startup off the ground uh, in the US working with, a, with, with most banks. Uh, we typically get customers live in you know, six, eight, 12 weeks, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that is a, that's, that's a big uh, change for folks. Uh, and it and really uh, allows them to focus their energy and, uh, and their resources on the core problem, which is product market fit, rather than trying to like figure out how to do things like, you know, reconcile a ledger with a, uh, with a bank account or, or figure out how to process ACH payments or, or deal with like ACH returns. 
We've also gone very, very deep into the ACH space. And, um, and we recently launched a couple of products, which, uh, which I think really change the way people perceive and even use ACH, right? And uh, if you guys know, ACH is one of the retail payment systems in the US. It's actually 10 times larger than cards in volume. So there's like 74 trillion a year of ACH volume compared to like uh, seven, eight uh, trillion of of, uh, of card volume. Uh, and the it's the way that everybody's paycheck gets paid. It's how most bills get paid. It's how most of like B2B, uh, government, all of that all mostly goes over ACH, right? Uh, it's a 50-year-old batch-based file system-based sort of payment system left over from the 70s. Uh, what we ha- can do is we can, for our customers, we can onboard their end users, verify their identity, link an external bank account. And with one API call, we can put the funds from that ACH available in a wallet or an account instantaneously, uh, as opposed to the two to three-day settlement, that period that typically happens. Now, in ACH, there's always the risk of a return. So the question is like, really, who's taking that risk? And we can we can manage that in a couple of different ways. Our customers can take the risk. And this is really useful in sort of B2B uh, scenarios where folks are moving money, but it takes three, five, seven, eight days sometimes to move money from one bank account to another. We can bring that down to like, same day in in many cases by making the funds available instantaneously and if there isn't any real risk then you don't have to worry about it right uh but but there is a lot of b2c cases there is a lot of risk the internet fraud is a huge huge problem and we will actually guarantee that fund and take on the risk ourselves uh, but when we do that, we deploy a huge bunch of technology, right? So we do device ID with biometrics. We look at account data. We look at um, uh, KYC data. We have our own proprietary risk model to score the end user and the transaction. And if we approve it, we'll make the funds available and guarantee them. So the, the, that's kind of the, the the set of capabilities we've built around that core ACH problem. But of course, there's a lot more than just that, you know, virtual accounts and uh, wire payments and all the things that our customers need to scale. Uh, Always building, always innovating. And it's really still, we're an early stage company just raised a Series A last year. No, fascinating. So so from programmatic or, or making money programmable and targeting the pipes, right? ACH is one of the pipes you're targeting and kind of streamlining that, removing friction or, or making it quick. No, that's fascinating. And, and also solving not just the distribution, but the risk um, aspect, which is, which is great. Um, hope we have some time to kind of get into the details. I want to get Brian into the conversation about what he's building. I know he's building something very similar, but kind of maybe in, in, in a little different um, um, aspect. So Brian, tell us about Turn. Sure, thanks. Um, so uh, Turn is set, setting out to democratize fintech, right? So we've I, I've been in the industry for what, like like twelve years now, and especially on the issuing side, it's um, you know like like Shamir said, it, it it takes a long time to like launch a card product um, or to launch any any sort of fintech product. Um, so we're setting out to um, bring that time down to um, hours, days, um, to launch products. So in order to do that, we're doing it in, in almost like a, we're, we're, we're approaching the problem almost as a, as a consumer product problem. So how, how do people understand how kind of FinTech works? So we, we feel there's this, there's, there's this thesis that FinTech should be for everyone. So in order to educate people and these aren't like, you know, venture backed, um, you know, big fintech people. Yeah, we, we have a number of those in our portfolio, but we're really looking to to add like traditional businesses who want to add fintech products to their existing customer base. So in order to get them accustomed to, you know, the 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 utility of these, these, these instruments, we're actually launching a card product called Turn Cards in Q3. Turn Cards is almost like a Swiss army knife of, of virtual or physical cards. You can limit the spend by merchant, merchant, um, merchant type, um, or to a specific merchant, you can automatically refill cards. The first tranche will be um, businesses in the U.S. So, you know, a business can, you know, a KYB, KYC themselves onto the platform, 
um, link their bank account, verify their bank account, and, and start, you know, issuing virtual and physical cards to, you know, you could, you could have a specific card for a specific vendor. You could give a, a $50 physical card to your office manager so he or she can o- only spend that on uh, like a restaurants or what have you. So to give people, help people understand like the utility of cards and how they could potentially be useful in their business and, and turn cards will, will be a free card product. Um, so it's similar to like a, a ramp or a Brex where you're controlling spend, but you know, without having 15 features, we'll have like five, but we're going to do them really, really well. Um, and, and there will be 1% cash back on, on all turn cards. So people will also understand that there's a monetary attachment to these transactions to their spend. Um, and once they're in the, the turn cards app or the turn cards web app, they'll see, you know, some, some grayed out features there for, for payouts or launch your own card product, uh, launch a branded card product. Uh, do remittance, you know, move to crypto. Um, and those will be grayed out. And those those features will only be available to to term business users. So once you subscribe to be a term business user, those will those will be enabled. Um, and those term business users we're going to, you know, limit to um, the the capacity that we as a company like like Shamir, we're we're an early stage company. Um, you know, we we have a certain capacity to onboard these accounts. So we're probably going to limit it to probably 20 or so a month to start. Um, and then and then we'll go from there. And, and the thesis is once we do this really well here, then we'll immediately do this in Europe and Asia and, um, you know, go from there. Yeah. Wow. I'd like to get that for my kids. I, it sounds pretty cool uh, with the cash back and with the spend management control. I'll so after get... the corporate cards, we'll, we'll move to consumer cards consumer. and those consumer okay. cards will be, you know, for, for allowances, some similar to like a green light, but again, green light has like 15 features. We're going to have five, but do them really well, but we're also going to, those cards will be able to like remit funds or, you know, invest in crypto. Um, you know, if you want to use this as your, like your actual card, you could like auto invest, you know, two percent in Bitcoin or whatever when you get yeah, paid. Yeah, no, would love to. Would love to get get a little bit more detail on it, Brian. But Shamir has to catch a flight and he's going to leave us, so we have some time to get a Brian. But let me get uh, Shamir in real quick before he goes and catches flight on on some closing remarks. Um, Shamir, um, where do you think fintech's going? Where do you think crypto is going? Obviously, we talked a little bit about the market. It's all kind of tied together. But your your closing thoughts before we let you go. Yeah, I think the, uh, like, I, I agree with Brian that, you know, crypto is now so big that it's not uncorrelated. It's gotten more correlated with the, uh, the, the rest of the market. And that's, that's a normal journey. Any asset class, once it becomes big enough, it kind of becomes the market <laughs> and everything gets correlated to it. So it's not surprising, I guess, that, uh, the correlations have increased. Um, and, and there is a sell off happening. I think actually fintech, public market fintechs have actually sold off more than crypto. That could change by the way, day or the hour now, right? The selling is, is, has continued. Um, so it, it, it can feel like the world is falling apart and everything is ending and, uh, and it's, it's all uh, going to hell in a handbasket. I think folks like Brian and myself have been around the block uh, a little bit, know that it's never as bad in the downturn as it seems. And it's never really as good during the, the, the upside of the hype cycle as it may seem. Uh, it's, the, the the long-term secular trend for fintech and crypto is unchanged in my mind. Uh, global financial services is a 17 trillion revenue industry uh, and all of fintech and crypto together maybe are coming up on like 2% market share. Um, there's still a decade of growth left um, and, and there will be, no matter how fast you grow, the market can always like, uh, get ahead of you and then it can get behind you. I think if you're a builder or an innovator, uh, you know, you should, uh, you should just stick to your knitting and keep building and shipping and, and changing the world and making it a better place. Awesome. Great advice. Great wisdom for somebody who's been around the block. Um, thank you, Shamir. Thank you for having me, Paddy. Okay. Nice to meet you, Shamir. Enjoy your flight. So Brian, um, sorry, the schedules kind of got a um, um, little bit um, overlapped there with his flight plan, which was um, late schedule, I think, or it was planned recently. But let, if I can kind of switch back and go back to your uh, virtual card or prepaid card and, and the different features, 
Um, so you're targeting uh, corporate as well as maybe small business and eventually plan to uh, roll um, to, to consumers. Um, and I think iHop Teens would be a great kind of segment for some of that. Um, and, and it's not limited to just purchases, right? And you talked about obviously spend management, some, some of the value added services, but also crypto. So talk a little bit about that, like how, how, how crypto fits into the card. Yeah, crypto to, to us is really just like another onboarding and offboarding mechanism, right? So um, all of our cards can be can be loaded with crypto and then all the cards um, and accounts can, you know, um, push money from, from the account or from the card in, into a crypto wallet. Um, and there will be, you know, auto invest features. So, you know, if you're if you're a contractor and you've got a contractor card and um, every time you get your, you know, your 1099 payment or what have you, if you wanted to automatically, you know, invest 5% of that into Ethereum, you could do that, stuff like that. So it's where we're not holding the ledger, we're not holding the balance. It's really just like an odd road or, or an off road through a gateway. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's further demonstrating the kind of like the utility of, of a platform like this. No, fascinating. Yeah. So you can have a single place where you can go to different places um, without actually maybe taking some of the risks and things like that. that that's that's right. awesome. Uh, what a shift. I know we're talking infrastructure and the term fast is uh, used and it has evolved over the years. And I have, I've written over the years as well about um, a while ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. About open banking. And now it's called Bass and it was called open banking. So um, I think you, you have a thesis of how this is evolving, right? And Bass as utility and also kind of a global Bass. So talk, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I think the, again, like I think Bass fills a, a need, right? And like getting programs to market faster. But um, from, from our perspective, it's only taking it so far because you still need to build the app. You still need to have, you know, compliance. You still need to, you know, be, be SOC 2. You need PCI. You know, you need to like, you st- a lot of these BAS providers still require, you know, additional third parties for KYC or onboarding or what have you, or your own Plaid account or whatever, right? Um, our, our thesis is like, if you, if you combine all these things and yeah, of course we have an API, but, you know, to deploy these things in, in a low code or a no code framework that could be, you know, very easily like embedded or added to an existing application, um, you know, you'll, you'll be able to spur innovation and, and really um, A-B test whether something is, is useful or not. Um, we also want to, you know, make these services available to like incredibly early stage people, you know, people that maybe they have a full-time job and they have this idea or they have a community. Um, you know, Shamir had mentioned, you know, that a lot of these neobanks have, um, like a specific uh, demographics, right? And, and I think a lot of these interesting neobanks, some of the most interesting ones have been, have been you know, born out of the, the needs of, of individuals or, or just like frustrated with the existing banking infrastructure and not being able to get credit or not being able to, you know, get a loan or not being able to like get a card with a high enough balance or what have you. Um, so I, we think that there's going to be <clears throat> you know, almost like a a grassroots kind of movement that people will be able to, to start to like launch their own like fintech products um, at 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 an incredibly early stage. And they, and they know their market, they know their community. um, And we want to empower them. And and frankly, we want to democratize the process. If you want to, you know, launch a car product and you have 20 users, go ahead, you know, and you want it to be branded. Yeah, go ahead. Use our, use our co-branded card. We'll approve you. And you just launch your 20 cards and, and yeah, you'll, you'll probably make some money off of it too. And if you want to like add features then you know, use whatever in our stack to do that. So, um, you know, it's really like targeting the, those early stage users with a technology stack that we currently have that can accommodate, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars that we're moving every month and the, you know, the, hundreds of thousands of cars that we've issued you know we we have the infrastructure to support like these these big swaths of money movement and cars and fintech services but we want to make those available to to the to the really really early stage as well as like the mid-stage and i think honestly like we have we have two unicorns in our portfolio like they're they're using our services like we you know it's it's we, we call it fintech for everyone you know it's that's that's the thesis 
Yeah, no, that's that's very powerful. So what? So some of these early stage communities and and folks that you're targeting or or, or talking about, what what do they need to know? How much kind of program programming skills or other skills, or how simple is it? So with our no code offering, um, you know, they they do not have to have any programming skills, right? They can go in and sign up. Um, we'll KYB them. And, and we'll give them the tools to, you know, KYC or KYB their customers um, and, you know, help them, you know, put, put the, the systematically through, through the platform, um, you know, launch a, 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 their own card program that's fully branded for them, fully like white, a white label off the shelf, like, you know, program that has, you know, various features that they think will be attractive to their community. You know, they obviously, they'll be doing the marketing, they'll be doing, you know, a lot of like the, the hands-on, like, you know, kind of, you know, tier one support because it's their customer, right? But um, every one of our programs comes, you know, bundled with, you know, an IVR system and, and customer support and, and all the things that they need um, to, to actually like operate the program. Whereas before you'd have to have like, you know, probably seven or eight different contracts with a bunch of different vendors and probably like a million bucks in 12 months of a roadmap. Um, we're trying to like boil that down to like, you know, hours. Fascinating. And, and this you're targeting multiple geographies and countries, or this is just us focused. Yeah. Great question. So for now it's just us focused and for now it's us business focused. Um, the next tranche will be us consumers um, and then as a business, you could then launch a U.S. consumer card as well, right? So every time we launch like turn cards for business, then like turn cards uh, as, as a business user, as a business subscriber to our SaaS platform, then you can launch a business product as well. Um, and then the next tranche will be uh, consumers. And then, you know, as a business, you can launch a, a consumer card on, on our platform as well. Obviously, like consumer cards, there's a lot more regulation. You know, um, it's not a, a single source of funds. So, you know, managing the funds flow in and out um, is something that we're like incredibly proficient at. So, you know, enabling people to do that through our platform is, is, is where we're going. And then after that, you know, we still own this, this U.S. unlocked asset, which is a virtual card for non-U.S. citizens by U.S. goods. We're, we're, we're planning to convert all those card, card users over to be turned cross-border card users. Um, and that's about 250,000 people around the world. So all those people will be, you know, global turn cards users. Um, and those cards will be limited to spend just the U.S. e-commerce merchants. But that will, you know, enable us to have a kind of a global foothold. And from there, you know, we're, we're planning to replicate exactly what we're doing in, in these other geos and get the appropriate licensing to to launch these these types of programs all around the world. And do you see there's a lot of opportunity globally? I know there are some players that kind of play in that kind of global fintech or global bass uh, market, but you see yourself going down that path in the next um, year or so? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're already there. You know, we're already issuing cards all around the world <laughs> through these various like programs and platforms. Um, but having like local domiciles and local licensing in these different geos is, is the next phase. And, and yeah, there are you know, like a, a rapid and Neom, and there's a, a handful of other, you know, unicorn status companies that are, that are doing this. Um, but our, our feeling and, 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 you know, being in the industry and kind of like understanding where, where all these moving parts are having, having a lot of that foundational platform rooted in, in a card product that is incredibly useful and has like very clear financial like tools and instruments and, and um, you know, uh, revenue share is, is where, where we're going with this. And I think rapid and, and Neam and some of these others, they do have card products in, in various markets. I think they're, I think they're probably starting to, to, to try to launch card products here in the U S and we're, we're already kind of there. Cool. Oh, very cool. Well, FinTech infrastructure, obviously broad, obviously we talked a little bit about challenger bank up uh, earlier in the program um and and crypto what are some of the big things you you are bullish about or are monitoring uh, brian outside of the stuff well you're doing what are we bullish about um you know i, I think you know again like the global context of of money movement um, it's still like incredibly expensive and incredibly inefficient to like send wires all around the world. And that's where, you know, the, all of these like banks and, and businesses, like they're still, you know, sending wires all over the place. Um, it's, you know, it's 
having, having, having to like put a tracer on a wire to see where my $2 million went, I think is just asinine. Right. So I think layering in um, blockchain into that type of an infrastructure, it's already happening in, in some, some context, but I think the, in, in, in 10 years, it will be, um, you know, it will, it will be, um, completely ubiquitous with cross-border money movement and like the fact that you know you eliminate the double spend problem um and you have you know atomic transactions going everywhere as opposed to like where did my two million dollars go i mean that's just ridiculous yeah now cross-border payments is well there are a lot of players like you say who playing in blockchain also some establishing incumbents that have kind of created their networks. I mean, it's one thing, the technology, and sometimes I feel it's also the network you build, right? How many banks, how many entities you bring into your network. Um, so, but but um, look forward to that. I mean, I, I know it, it is a um, it is an area with a lot of friction. So, and blockchain and networks can solve um, some of that. Totally. And like the, the whole like corresponding bank relationships, like it's, it's so hard to be a corresponding bank with, with a U.S. bank today outside of the U.S. You know, that's the, the, from, from a regulatory standpoint, it's, it's really been like ratcheted down. So there's only like a handful of like, you know, legitimate, you know, good, uh, achievable, useful um, corresponding banks around the world. And they've got all the volume, you know, and that, to me that's um you know it, it should be it should be a, a wider swath obviously within the regulatory framework but it should be it should be easier you, you shouldn't have to go through all these corresponding banks to go back to back yeah yeah um in, in closing i know we're coming to the top of the hour um what like you're looking at kind of more connections with corporates and small business but overall who are you trying to connect with for partnerships um who would you like and how can they reach out to you in closing um what would you uh what would your um, um connections be there yeah i would um you know connect on on linkedin our our website's turn it up with an e t e r n i t u p dot com uh, we may be changing that domain at some point in the not so distant future. Um, but you know, we're, 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 we're bullish on enabling FinTech for everyone. We, we, we feel like, you know, empowering, um, even like the, 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 the individual user to take control of their spend and take control of their money, um, and, and educating people on, on how these financial systems work and what levers, um, are being pulled um, and dem- democratizing access to those services is really what we're all about. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Shamir, for sharing your views. We covered a lot of ground. Um, thank you for coming on the FinTech Talk Show. Thank you so much, Patty. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>